one you can follow behind me up on the big screen. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, "'What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp?' When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Good morning, everybody. My name's Ross, if we haven't met. We are going through uh, 1 Samuel as a church together. We are hitting four chapters this morning, so we're going to move through pretty quickly. But I hope even with that, that reading, just the first 11 verses, has got us intrigued. What is going on here? What is God doing? And how is God working with his people and revealing his power? How does that all work? We're going to dig a bit deeper to see what God is actually doing, not just in their time, but for us today. Let me pray and then we'll start. Father, I do pray as we come before you and listening to the nice rain on the roof and just whatever week we're having, whatever stage of life we're at, just taking time out to reflect on you, to draw near to you and now, Lord, to listen to you. So I pray that you'd speak to us this morning through your actions so many years ago, but through your word now, through your Holy Spirit that talks to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been an exciting week, hasn't it? Who had an exciting week when they found out we have a new Prime Minister? Scott Morrison. Here he is, in case you didn't know who he was. Uh, Who thought, this is a leader I want to follow? This is a leader I want to pay my taxes to. This is a leader I I want to, I mean, going to enjoy sitting under. Or are you the sort of person who just thinks, well, yes, he's our Prime Minister, but really he's not worth knowing because he'll be gone in 12 months or two years. The turnover is so great. Are you a little bit more cynical about our leaders? Because I think it's a cultural thing for us in Australia particularly, and I think it goes back to our roots uh, back when Australians as a bunch of convicts come over from England. Uh, Who sent us as convicts 
to, into Australia was the English leaders. It was the politicians who sent us over here. And then who were we convicts under? Well, the politicians over in England, the leaders, had to draw straws. Who was going to be the unlucky one who come, had to come to a strange island and look after a bunch of convicts? So they, we didn't have a good working relationship right from the start. We're a bit cynical to our leaders. We don't trust our leaders. In fact, we often think, oh, I could even do better than that. I mean, we look at these guys and we just go, what are they doing in Canberra? I could do better than what they're doing. What are they thinking? So we have this, we don't like submitting unto, under leadership because we don't have the confidence in them. Now, if you're not into politics, I'm sure we've all experienced this sort of, you know, cynical, cynicism towards our leaders. Uh, if you've been a teenager before and you've had parents overseeing you. Yeah, I could say, put up your hand if you've thought the same thing about your parents. You know, why are they, what, what gives them the right to lead over me? I could do a better job than their parenting, than their leadership. I could say, put up your hand if you've ever thought that, but I know some of you guys are sitting with your parents and that would be really awkward. But it's not just parents, isn't it? Well, whatever stage of life you're in, even if you're being employed and your boss, it's like, man... I know so much better than my boss. I know so, I could do so much better job. I could do better than them. I see Ben Mansfield's not putting his hand up, so I'm glad that that is it's good. Uh, but we have this, why should I submit under somebody else's leadership when I can do a better job myself? I'm going okay. And we kind of have to wrestle with this when we read scripture and we get this message about a God, a God who says, I... I'm here and I am Lord and I'm here to, to be your Lord, to be your leader. And it grates against us. Why should I submit to this God? I'm doing all right by myself. I could do a better job than him when I look around at the place. He's not doing such a great job anyway. We get cynical. Why should I trust him? Or we take it a step further and you know, we can say, yep, I'm happy to have this God. But the whole thing about Lord and submission, I'm here to serve him, I'm not that comfortable with. So I'm happy to have God, or at least the idea of God, but he's a small God. And in fact, as long as he agrees with me, as long as he uh, sides with the way I side and think the way I think and supports my decisions, I'm happy to have this God. So we're not ruling out God altogether, but we try and tame God. He's a small God. Put him in a box and we'll just bring him out whenever we need him. So we all have different attitudes to leaders and even God as our leader. Do we reject him because we can do a better job? Do we make him a small God and try and tame him so he's under our control and there to glorify us? Now, this is a question people have been wrestling with pretty much throughout time. How does God fit? What does it look like that he's Lord? What does it look like that I should serve him? And live under his leadership. This was going on even for God's people, the Israelites, back in Samuel's day. So this is like about 1000 BC, just a little bit more than that. So real historical events uh, and, and what was playing out uh, there. And we get this message how God wants to make a statement to the Israelites there and then, but for all us generations to come, 
that he is control and he is worthy to be Lord and he is worthy for us to serve under. And we can not only have confidence in that, but we can have delight in knowing that he is Lord. See, this is how it plays out. As I said, we're covering four chapters. We'll move, move through it uh, quite quickly. But we can see, uh, firstly, in this first episode, there's three episodes. First episode, God will not be controlled. And here we have this... Uh, confrontation with the Philistines. Now, we haven't met the Philistines yet before, uh, so it's worth just getting a bit of background to know why they're, you know, if you've been into veggie tales, you get the veggie tales idea of the Philistines, but no, these are really bad guys. Uh, so they're um, sea people. They come in from uh, other countries into what we now know is around that Israel area. Uh, they took the coastal land. So they've set them up as coastal land. Uh, they were good traders, so they had access to metal and they were prime metal workers. The Egyptians now, like we're finding um, archaeological accounts where the Egyptians talk about the Philistines and how strong their armies were because of their weaponry. So they had access to steel, they were very good at making their chariots and their spears and swords uh, to fight. So they were very fighting men, they were very ambitious. So they, wanted, they were living on the coast, they wanted to spread east into the hills. They had their god Dagon with them and they were ready to go. They were there to conquer and expand their territory. The problem was, in the hills, the Israelites were there. They were more of a farming community, peasants and poorer. And, but they were, had God, the God of Israel, the God we read about in the Bible. And God had given them the promised land all the way to the coast. So they were expecting to move westwards to take over the coast. But they were a poorer farming community. So there was this battle. It's not like the Philistines, when we read, you kind of think the Philistines are just a pest that just keep coming back and coming back and coming back. No, they really wanted to wipe out Israel. They want to go in there, plunder them, take them for slaves. They really wanted to, to wipe out Israel, shed blood. So whenever you see the, Isra the Philistines are coming to attack... It's like, you know, what happens if another country come to attack us? You know, like, we're fearing for our lives. So this is the seriousness of it whenever we see the Philistines coming. So they're coming, uh, Israelites going to battle. As you read, it's just a couple of verses in uh, 4,000 die. And they start asking, why? Why has all this happened? Why hasn't God saved us? Why isn't he expanding our territories? Why isn't God doing all this stuff? And they come up with a strategy of actually getting God more involved. You know, they've got this Ark of the Covenant. Shiloh was kind of the religious town of the day uh, where the, the makeshift temple was. Uh, so if we get this Ark, which is just a box uh, with gold trimmings, it was very fancy, with some writing over it about God's covenant with them, how God's a God of grace and mercy, and he's going to be with his people. That's his covenant, his promise. Inside this box has got things like um, when Moses went to the, to the hill to get the Ten Commandments on stone tablets, they put them in the box. That's so kind of like whenever you think of God and the way he's acted, you think of the box. This is what's um, what, what it's pointing. You see the box, you see God. Basically, you pointed to God. God is not physically in the box. God is not the box. Uh, but God said, look, this is something that's going to be helpful for you uh, to know that I am with you in a physical way is the box, the ark, it's called. So I so said, let's get the ark. Let's bring it out with us and bring the priests as well. And the two priests that are named, uh, we heard about last week as 
really corrupt priests. They were helping themselves to the meat that was being sacrificed. They were sleeping with the women in the temple. You know, they're just bad priests um, that were coming around. But this changes things. Because what they're expecting, if we've got the ark, if we've got God on our side, it's like an army bringing out their secret weapon. He's going to wipe out the Philistines. There's, there's reason to expect good things are going to happen. They're expecting now that they've got the ark, and you hear this big cheer that goes up, and the cheer is so great that the ground shakes. You can imagine these men. They're so pumped up that the ark has come in and the priests are there. God's going to guarantee victory. They're already thinking through how they're going to march into town after their victory. They're going to wipe out the Philistines, come into town. In their, usually what happens is a parade after a battle where the soldiers come in and the leader sits on the cart as he gets taught, um, led back into the town. They plunder the enemy, so they get all the treasure and put it on the cart too, and they show all the locals. This is what we've done. We've destroyed the enemy. We've got the plunder. And they have a big celebration. And if they're people like the Israelites, they should have a, a sacrifice and praise God for what's been happening. And you can imagine them going through this. Mate, this is such a done deal. We're going to wipe out the Philistines. We're going to celebrate. It's all going to be good. And what does that do for the Philistines? So while they're celebrating, the Israelites, going, hey, this is awesome... The Philistines are starting to, to wonder, hey, this is actually bad news. If these guys are celebrating so much, they've brought their God in, and remember, this is a God. Remember what happened in Egypt when God destroyed the Pharaoh and took the Israelites out of slavery? Their God did all that. It wasn't Israelites' army. It was their God who destroyed his. And they're starting to panic. They're starting to, you know, the talk in the Philistine camp. They're starting to get worried. And that gets to the point where they need a pep talk. And the guys, uh, the leaders say, come on, man up. We've got this. You know, don't, don't worry about their God, trying to distract them from God. We need to go in and fight. We can't run away now. So it's interesting that they're actually reflecting on God and how mighty God is more than the Israelites. I think the writer has actually brought us into the Philistine camp just to give us a glimpse of the Philistines can actually see who God is better than the Israelites. See, what were the Israelites doing, apart from banging their feet in the big shout? Are they talking up, we're right now because we've got the ark. Remember, God has destroyed Pharaoh and God has destroyed Egypt. He's going to help us again. Have they got their priests? What are the priests doing? Are they making sacrifices to, to appeal to God to come and help? We just get silence over the, Philistines, uh, over the Israelite camp. They're not doing anything. Priests aren't doing anything. They're just there uh, expecting something big to happen. So then we get to verse 10. Uh, when they go in to fight, and short and sweet again, uh, thousands upon thousands are killed. Um, 30,000 are killed. It's not what you're expecting. The two priests are dead. Now, if you're here last week, uh, God actually said, Look, my judgment's going to come on you, priest. You're going to die in the same day. So that's kind of, if you've been following the story, that's not a surprise. But the ark has been captured. God has been taken. They've lost God, basically. This is bad, bad news. And the report then goes back. Rather than having the big celebration back at, in the camp, back at Shiloh in town, 
there's a report that comes back and the, the messenger says to the town, look, the army's gone, the priests are gone, the ark's gone, the town just cries out to God. Eli, the father of the priest, the old head priest, uh, he's there, he's in his 90s now. He says, what's going on? He gets the message and we get told again, the army's gone, your sons are gone and now the ark is gone. And when he heard the ark is gone, we're told he fell off his chair and because of his weight, his neck broke and he died hearing the news. Not that his sons are dead because he kind of knew God was going to do something like that. But he fell over and died when he heard the news the ark had gone. There's this big thing of, you know, we've lost the ark. In Eli's time, the ark never left Shiloh, never left the, the makeshift temple. He lets it out. And they lose it. The, the, the God, the God of the Israelites, is their God is their identity and they've lost it. The story gets explained even further. We stop reading this far, but from now on it gets uh, quite long. I encourage you to read it this week. It uh, talks about one of the priest's wives are expecting a baby. Uh, they're due. And when she hears the news that the army's gone, uh, the husbands are gone, the ark's gone, when she hears that news, uh, she goes into labour. And she goes into labour, and during labour, uh, she's going to die. Uh, she gives birth to a son, and in her dying breath, uh, she, she says, she names the boy Kabod, uh, sorry, Ichabod, uh, which means the glory has departed from Israel. Now, Kabod, we're going to hear a bit more about that later, the Hebrew word Kabod, and if you like spitting, it's a good word, because in the Hebrew... Anytime you get near a K, yeah, Chabod, it's an excuse to just spray everybody around you. So she says, I'm going to name Ichabod, the glory of God has gone. So it's this whole, we've lost everything, not just massive death in the, the battle, but our identity. God has gone. The glory has gone. He's left us. Now, God's not going to sit back at that point because there's a bit of a misunderstanding here that if they've got the ark they've got control of God because that's what they're doing they're really playing with God he's our secret weapon we pull him out whenever we want him he can give us what we need we we need uh, victory so we'll pull out God and he'll give us victory then we'll shut him back into the temple again they're just playing with God at that point where God is not just the box He's not going to be controlled. He's not going to be tamed by the Israelites. He's actually thankful to get out there. First opportunity he had to get out of the temple, he's gone. Actually, God's in control. And he goes from them. And he, it's kind of, I think God's actually really trying to show them a lesson. If you think me having victory over 30 or 40,000 Philistines is going to show you that I'm powerful, I've got another lesson for you. So he's gone. He's going to show them, he's going to show the Philistines, he's going to show everybody that he really is in control. See, we get to the next chapter, chapter 5, and it looks like the Philistines uh, have mastered him. They've uh, put him with their god Dagon. So we, we get this language in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where they've captured the ark, they took the ark, they carried it, they... Uh, set it beside Dagon. They're doing all this stuff. They're in control of the ark. And you can imagine them going into Dagon's temple and sitting it beside Dagon. Here's big Dagon, the big statue of their God, and here's a box, the Israelite God. They're mocking it. 
by sitting it beside their God. But they've captured it. They're in control of God. They've tamed the Israelite God. But then what happens if God is in control? The next day, uh, people come into the temple and what's Dagon doing? He's fallen down. Now, it's, it's more than just the God of the Israelites are bigger than, than Dagon. It's actually, when uh, the, the Old Testament particularly uses words to describe what worship is, and worship is often described as being face down on the floor when you're worshipping something. Here's actually a picture of the Philistine god Dagon worshipping God in Dagon's own temple. Philistines, we can't have that. Let's stand him back up again. The very next verse. Uh, They come in again, and here he is, down, face down, worshipping God again. But this time his head's broken off, his hands are broken off. Uh, Almost, he's a broken man, a broken God, because he's with the God of the Israelites. And the Philistines are like, this is not good. This is not good. So they try and patch him together. They try and make it sacred again. But while this was all going on, while Dagon, where God, uh, the God of the Israelites, has shown that he is in control, even other gods bow down to him, we see that it's affecting the city as well. So in verse 6, it says the Lord's hand was very heavy on the people of the city. Now, this word kabod, kabod, uh, talking about God's glory, it's actually a variation. You know, sometimes we use words with different meanings in Hebrew. It's a bit tricky uh, how it uses its word. This word glory, kabod, uh, can mean um, God's mightiness, his awesomeness, or anybody's awesomeness. Also, it uses the word of weightiness. So kabod could be anything from glory at one end to weighty, heavy at the other end, but it captures this whole idea of mightiness, awesomeness. And this is going to come up a lot, deliberately, in this passage. So for the people, when we see the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people, the Lord's hand was kabod, it was mighty on the people. God's hand is glorious, not in a, in a oh wow, that's you know, uh, something we want to praise. For these guys, it's heavy. God's making himself known. The Israelites are saying God's glory has gone, and God's saying no, it hasn't gone I'm just putting it on display for the world to see. It's heavy on the people. Gets to verse 7, where they say, uh, when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy, that word kabod again, is on us and on Dagon, our God. God's glory, his mightiness is on the people and on their God. We can't control this God. His hand's too heavy. I think the writer's giving us a look into to this. The Israelites couldn't see God's glory or God's might. They tried to control him. But the Philistines, they've got God and they can't, can't be with this God that's so mighty, so glorious. His hand is so heavy upon us and even on our God. So that town don't want him. They send him off to Gath, another town. Uh, more tumours happen to people. People are getting sick and dying. Uh, they then send the, the, the ark onto Ekron. Uh, and this time, uh, the people are dying as well. And they cry out in verse 10. 
They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to kill us and our people. So then they call into the call the rulers to do something about it. Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. That word heavy, a kabod again. God's glory, God's mightiness was heavy upon it again. See, they can see it, and they're panicking. They're all, it's affecting them. People are dying because of this. Uh, they can't be with God, uh, in God's presence that way. So they get their priests and diviners and uh, say, we need to come up with a plan. They said, look, this God is so mighty and powerful. We need to send it back, but send it back respectfully. Don't just throw it back at them. I mean, these guys are sea people. They could take it out to sea and just dump it in the ocean, the ark. They could burn it on a fire, strip the gold off it and melt it down. They could do a whole bunch of things, but they're going, no, no, we can see this is God. We can't just control it. You can imagine if we threw it in the water, what he would come back and do. So no, we're going to send him back respectfully to Israel so he won't come back uh, and do anything worse. So they suggest that they send it back with a guilt offering. Uh, what's a guilt offering? Do we do guilt offerings today? We kind of do. You know when you have an argument with your wife and the, that afternoon you buy flowers on the way home and you come in the door and here's a bunch of flowers and you apologise, right? Well, it's kind of like our today's version of a guilt offering. Uh, it's kind of like, here's a gift for you and I'm sorry. So this is what the priests are saying to the God of Israel. Here, let's send it back to Israel with a guilt offering. And with this guilt offering, uh, they suggest to make these gold tumours and gold rats, five gold tumours and five gold rats to go with it. So here's, um, here's some wealth, some riches that you can take back to show we're sorry. We're sorry for messing around with you and what we did to send it back. Now... You might be going five gold tumours. Now, there was five main cities of the Philistines and they thought if we make a big gold tumour, one representing each town, that way, you know, there's a gift from each town. The five gold rats, lots of people have wondered why. Uh, there's lots of theories, lots of ideas. We don't really know why they included the five gold rats. But they did. Ten big chunks of gold. Uh, they sent back to them. But they say, uh, make models of these tumours and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. So don't just send him away, just we hate him. No, actually give glory, like man, you're powerful. Send him back to the Israelites. Then perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. See, it's interesting. They want to give this glory to God. It's almost like they can see God. They can understand God better than the Israelites. They've got this respect they see his glory, they see his might, but they're not God's people. They don't want to live in his presence and they reject him, they push him away. But there's also some sceptics there with them and the sceptics say, well, if we're going to send him back, let's do this as a bit of a test from verse 7. Let's uh, set up a cart, let's put two cows, we're going to pull the cart, let's nobody steer it. Let's not put any person steering these cows back to Israel. Uh, just If the cows go to Israel with the ark on it, on the cart, and with the plunder, the, the gold, the ten pieces of, uh, of gold on the back, if the cows go to Israel, we know God's steering them back. But actually, let's, 
Let's test this a little bit more. Let's get two cows that have had calves. Let's keep the calves back on Philistine land and see if the cows turn around to come back to their calves. Because that's what they'll want to do, right? They're, they're, they're new. Uh, they've just had the cows. They've got the milk, the calves. They've got the milk. They want to come back to their calves. So that way, they're not just going to go on random wandering. They'll want to come back. And if this God is real, he'll go all the way back to Israel. So they set it up, the ark, the gold, two cows, got the calves behind, and they watch. They want to watch, is it going to work? And they watch it all the way into Israel. The cows don't even turn, we're told, uh, that they go all the way back, bellowing, but they go back. So the Philistines, even the sceptics, see, they can't tame God. God is in total control of this. But God is going back even to the, back to the Israelites' country under God's leadership, under God's control. Now, the question is then, the Philistines see who God is, see his glory, see his might, but will the Israelites see it now? Will they get who God is and that you can't control God? Will they see God's might? Well, we get this thing uh, from verse 13. We're told how the cart comes back into town. Now, this is really interesting in that how this all happens. You get this cart. So there's these people working in the fields. They see this cart coming. Just think, what were, what were the Israelites expecting? After a big victory over the enemy, what were you expecting the army to do? And now we get this description of God. God, in the ark, is coming back on a cart in his parade, in a sense, coming back. Nobody's controlling it. God's in control. He's coming back on the ark. What do you do when you come back after you've conquered the, the enemy? You've got plunder. He's got gold in the back of the ark. God's coming back in. And they, they need to celebrate because there's been this big victory. The Philistines have been conquered. They're still burying their dead. They're afraid of Israel and afraid of their God. He's a great victory over the enemy. He comes back on a cart in his parade. He's got the plunder. Where's the army? Where's the army that's done all this stuff? It's God. Where was the, the Israelite men who were going to sneak in and, and pinch the ark back so they needed the ark back? They're, they're not to be seen. God did it all. God doesn't need an army. Destroys the Philistines, comes back, brings his own cart and his own cows. In fact, in part of the celebration when we want to have a sacrifice, who provides it all? They use the cart for the wood. Here's two cows that you can sacrifice. They even pull up beside a rock that they can use to do the sacrifice on. He supplies everything, even for the party at the end. God's in total control. No armies involved, no other leaders involved. God's got it all. He's mastered it all. But will they get it? Will they see it? See... What happens then is, uh, in the excitement of the moment, some of the Israelites peek in into the, the ark to see, you know, is there any more plunder or what is this God? What's in this box that, box that makes it so powerful? Seventy men die because they haven't seen the glory of God, the might of God and given it respect. But they've gone in, just walking in. It's just a box, isn't it? It's just God. It's only a small God. They don't understand it. So... It gets them into panic and they start asking the question, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? So now they're starting to see, not only has it destroyed the Philistines, but 
We're not even worthy to stand in his presence. This God is so mighty, so glorious, so in control that we can't even just do what we want anymore because he's so big. He's so big. So they have some time to think about it. What are they going to do? What are they going to do with God? They think about it for 20 years. They leave the ark. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to go near it. We know he's there, but we need to think about what we're going to do with him. But after 20 years, uh, they see that life under God's control could be a good thing. And they want to turn back. I want to turn back to him. This is when we hit chapter 7. So all the people of Israel turn back to the Lord. So Israel in the past were playing games with him. They were just using him, pulling him out whenever they wanted him. But no, this time... They said, we're going to turn back to God. It's interesting, this idea of turning back uh, is a word where the New Testament develops into repentance. Uh, to repent is to, you're heading your life one way and you actually want to repent. You want to turn around and come back to God rather than walking away from God. So they're turning around, they're repenting. And in verse 3 it says, so Samuel said, so finally Samuel, the good priest is there, he says to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, remember what they were doing? You've got to contrast this at the start of the story. None of their hearts were with the Lord. But he says, no, no, if you want to do it properly, turn back to him with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of foreign gods and the ashtroths and commit yourselves to the Lord. What were they doing before? They weren't committed to God. They thought God was committed to them. They thought God was making everything right for them. He goes on to say, and serve him only. They thought God was there to serve them. You know, a little God, a God in a box. We've tamed God. He's there to make my life right, to make everything all happy and rosy. But no, he's going, no, he's got to be your Lord. That means you've got to put him up high. He's got to be your leader. And that means you need to serve him. That's big. It's massive. And then he says... And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So how did the Israelites respond? Verse 4. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtroths, uh, ashtroths uh, and served the Lord only. See, it's a great example. If you want to repent, if you want to turn around, if you're considering what does it mean to, to follow God, to have Jesus as your Lord. We'll get to Jesus in a moment. But how do we put him as Lord? Actually, what Samuel is saying is that, this is the reality. If you want to call him Lord, he's got to be Lord of your life. Turn away from your idols. Those other things you look to, the other things you depend on, the other things that you're seeking and driving. Serve God. And serve him alone. And repent. Is this real? It's the question about Israel. Do they really get it? Is this just words? Yeah, yeah, we want to be on God's team. Uh, but do they get it? goes on in verse 5 and 6 then Samuel said assemble the Israelite uh, assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you when they had assembled at Mizpah they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and on that day they feast they fasted and were and they confessed we have sinned against God this whole confession, look, God, we've been mucking you around, but this time it's real. This time I want to make you Lord. This time I want to put you in charge. I don't want to make you my servant. I want to be your servant. 
They seem to be going through this process. And it looks good, looks genuine, looks real. They're doing everything Samuel's saying. But a lot of people can do that and say that. A lot of people can come to church and get all, hey, this is what I want, this is all exciting, this is, I'll say the right words and this is what I want, but haven't put away the idols or they haven't genuinely confessed or they haven't genuinely put Jesus as Lord. And, and when life gets rocky, when life gets hard, when things challenge their faith, it starts to show cracks and often people fall away. Is Israel going to do the same thing? What happens when Israel's challenged the next time? Are they going to trust God? What happens when their faith is tested, their trust in God is tested? Are they going, are they going to cling to him? We don't have to wait long because it's the very next verse. The very next verse, verse 7, we're told, the Philistines heard that, the Israel, that Israel has assembled at Mizpah and the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. See, these guys are the bloodthirsty guys that are trying to wipe you out, take your families captive, put you into slavery, plunder all your stuff. They're the real deal that's trying to work it, to wipe you out. They're a real challenge. And they've returned. They've returned to get us again. See, it's like our faith, isn't it? What happens when our faith gets tested? The cancer's returned. The person who put grief into your life last time, that conflict has returned. The bills that nearly sunk us last time have returned. You know, all these things challenge our faith. Are we going to trust God in this moment? Or are we going to stuff God, oh, I'm out of here? So you can imagine these guys, they're nervous, they're afraid. What are they going to do? Verse 8. They said to Samuel, "Do not stop crying out to the Lord, for for God, uh, sorry, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that He may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines." It's very different to the first battle, isn't it? The first battle, we got the ark, we're okay, we're not crying out, we're not even doing any sacrifices, but this time, it's, no, no. God is our hope. We're going to trust him. We have faith in him that he's a big God, he's an awesome God, he's a glorious God. We're going to trust in him. So. Samuel, do your thing. Cry out to the Lord for us that he might rescue us from the battle. Now you can imagine they've heard the army's coming. They're saying, Samuel, we're on your team. We want to trust God on this. But the army's still coming. The Philistines are still coming. The drama builds in verse 9. And Samuel took the suckling lamb and he sacrificed it. Sacrificed as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord... Uh, the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. So the army's coming, the army's coming. We've asked Samuel to help us. Samuel says, well, where's, where's the lamb? Get the lamb. Where's the fire to make the sacrifice? Somebody start up a fire. So by the time he gets the lamb, makes the sacrifice, prays to God over it, starts putting, it all takes time. And the Philistines are still coming. We even get this tension in verse 10. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage in battle. You can imagine being one of the men there, one of the soldiers there. Come on, Samuel, we're trusting you. We're trusting God this time. We're going to do it better. But you can hear the hooves of the horses pulling the chariots coming. You know, the sound, the clinking of their armoury, the stomping of feet of the men. 
They're all coming. You can see the, the, the dust coming up from their armies, gathering around you. They're circling you. Your heart starts beating fast. You start to sweat. You even start to doubt, don't you, in those times when your life is challenged so hard. You go, well, am I trusting the right God? Have I put all my eggs in one basket and really burnt myself with this one? When's the time do you start grabbing your spear and running out and start doing it yourself? Or when do you start doubting and going, my backpack's there with all my gear. I need to do a runner and get back to my family and warn them what's going to happen. Just pull out of it altogether. I don't need this God stuff. I'm a better leader than him. The pressure's on here. I think the writer really wants us to feel the tension, the weight of this battle. How's it going to work out? So while they were... Uh, sacrificing, the Israelites are gathering. But then when it comes to the crunch, when the sacrifice is done, they've prayed to God. The verse goes on, But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such great panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to the point below beth Car. God was with them. God was under control. But this is a real test, isn't it? Very different to the first battle. But we've got these battles and God putting himself on display. You think I'm this big, I can win this battle. But I'm going to show you I'm this big. A little bit like what Ben was talking about before. Our plans for this building was that room. But no, I'm going to show you this room. It's been in a much bigger scale. I'm going to show you how big I am. Now do you trust me? Do you trust me? When the pressure's on, are you going to cling to me? Are you going to, to serve me as your leader and trust me as your leader? Israelite, the Israel, Israelites come through. They did. Now, I think there's three things. We'll just cover quickly to take away from this. It's an exciting story, isn't it? You get home and you want to read it over again and again. But there's three points to take away from this. First one is this God needs to be our Lord. You can't contain this God. We can't play games with him like a good luck charm or a genie. I'm in trouble, so I'll pray to him and I'll pull him out and he'll come and fix my life and make my life better, make him my servant. You can't tame God. Israel tried that. If we're honest with ourselves, we all try. We forget about God when life's going well. But when we need God, God, come Come, come out, I'll get you out now. Dust off the Bible. Now answer my prayers. God needs to be Lord. He's not going to serve you, but he's there for us to serve him. He's mighty. And if we want to do that, we've got to actually acknowledge him as Lord. Do what Samuel said. To actually get rid of our idols, the other things we cling on to. Confess to him, Lord, we've made mistakes. But now I want to trust you and you alone. And I want to serve you. That we come before him and put him on the throne of our lives. He needs to be our Lord. The second thing is God loves being our Lord. See, God could have abandoned Israel. He could have wiped them out. But no, he wanted to teach them a lesson to come back and say, look, I love being your king. I love looking after you. I love serving you. I love destroying the enemies. I love giving you the promised land. I love doing all that when you trust me. He loves to serve us uh, as, as Lord. He guides us, but not as, as the little God. 
See, I know when I want to be in the driver's seat, when I want to take control in my life, it often doesn't go so well, but it also adds a whole lot of stress to my life. You know, where's my life going? What education have I got? Have I gotten to the right job? Have I married the right person? How am I going to be responsible for my kids? How am I going to be responsible for running a home? How am I going to pay the bills? What about my future? Where are we going as a future? It actually puts a burden on us. Burden on us that you don't know. So you try harder, you work harder, you try and resolve problems. But it ends up putting us under so much pressure that when we say, God, if you're my God, I can trust you. Sure, I'm responsible for the choices I make in my life. But as God is Lord, he loves being Lord and I love him being Lord. So I know he can take my anxiety. He can take my pressure. He's Lord, he's powerful. And I need to trust him in that. So it's a good thing. It's good uh, to put him as Lord. But also, the third thing, God is God in all circumstances. So sometimes we think if our circumstances are bad, God is either weak or he's abandoned us or he doesn't care for us. It changes our perception of what God might be in that moment. But what we're learning through this story is even when things look bad, it doesn't make God weak. God is mighty. He's strong. He's glorious. He's that kabod. He's that. No matter what the situation is, no matter what the circumstances is, where the Philistines are surrounding you and they're ready to attack, God is still God. And we can trust him in that. Now this is where it must have been really hard for the disciples. They followed Jesus. They trusted Jesus. God says, I'm going to send you my son. He's going to reveal uh, what God's glory is really like. He sends Jesus, uh, Jesus down and Jesus uh, brings God's grace and God's love to humanity. But then what happens to Jesus? He gets killed on a cross. Now at that moment, it looks like God's glory is gone. God has left us. God has abandoned us. For the disciples, they thought, they actually went back fishing because they thought it was, was all over. But then when Jesus rose from the dead, it's almost like Jesus saying, no, you think I'm this big. I'm going to show you that I'm this big in his resurrection. He shows them that he is truly Lord, that he has truly conquered death. He truly can take your load, take your anxieties because he is truly Lord and we can trust in him. And the disciples had to learn that through experience. And, and often for us too, we have to learn that through experience, uh, through going through tough times, but to trust him that he is the answer, that we can know him and put him up as Lord. And it actually liberates us and frees us, knowing that he's a big God and a God that no one can tame. Let me pray, because I know each of us are going on different journeys in that. And we need to call on God now to, to, to show himself to us. Dear Father, we thank you that you are a big God. Well, we don't want to follow a, a small God, a God that we can put in a box and pull out, and a God that's untrustworthy and unreliable. But Lord, thank you that you're a big God, a glorious God, a mighty God, one that we can trust, one that we can call upon in all circumstances, in all situations of life. Lord, we want to say this morning that we're sorry because how often do we play games with you? that we pull you out just when we need you, when it's convenient for us or when we're desperate. But we need you as Lord. And Lord, give us that sense of uh, 
liberation and freedom, knowing that you are in control. doesn't mean our life's going to be perfect and rosy, but we know that you are in control and we can trust in you no matter what our situation is like. Lord, even this week, bring us before you in prayer and repentance that you will work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.